We've now sung around the Word of God. We have uh, prayed the Word of God. We have fellowshiped because the Word of God is active among us, and now we worship through the reading and the preaching of the Word. Just a quick note, in case you're visiting with us and don't know why, why we're not uh, doing a Memorial Day service and highlighting veterans, as just a side note, it's not because we're against veterans, I am one, but uh, on this Memorial Day weekend, we would rather reserve this time to memorialize the one who's given us life. His name is Jesus. And so uh, while if you know a veteran, I'd say go and greet them, go, go thank them, go appreciate what they did. But our time today in this time is dedicated to our Savior. So uh, just uh, another quick note, James chapter 4, verse 11 through 12, I'd encourage you to go ahead and flip there. Just a quick note about um, this. It's two verses, and you think, oh, we're going to get done fast. And yesterday, someone said, you can't talk for an hour over two verses. And I said, challenge accepted. But uh, not, not, not true. We, we, we'll cover them in a decent time. But this is the first time in the history of all of the years I've been preaching or teaching, doing anything with the Word that I've had to append a message, like add an appendix to ensure that we understand what's happening in the text. And so, just know we're going to deal with these two verses uh, in, in what, I weigh, what I believe is a, an honorable way, and then we're going to append that or qualify some of what's said in what I believe is an honorable and right way. Uh, and so anyway, James chapter 4, verse 11 through 12, we're going to start here. Let's read, uh, and then... We'll get at it. So the verses say, actually, you know what? For context, let me just, let me start back in verse four. Let me remind you of what James is doing here. Uh, plus, it's, it's fun to read this. <laughs> Not really. It's kind of convicting, really. You adulterous people, that's beginning in verse four. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with, of the world makes himself an enemy with God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. That's the passage we looked at last week. That's really the context of which these two next verses are going to stand. There's a clear call to repentance. So maybe as one of the commentators I read from, actually several, point to this as one of the most direct, one of the most confrontational calls to repentance in all of the New Testament. I mean, he starts it off, you adulterous people. He is not playing games. There's no way to be friends with God and friends with the world. You will be friends with one and not the other. But know this, there is more grace. Even in your faults and failings, there is more grace. So draw near to Him. Submit yourself to Him. Humble yourself before Him. He draws near to you and He exalts you. And grace upon grace flows over you. That's the context. The call to repentance. And, and, and now, as we turn, James is actually going to give us three case studies or three examples of ways that this should play out in the life of the, of the church we're going to deal with the first one in verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Father, I, I, I know what you have done in me over this last week. How you have called me to humility. 
even as we've considered these thoughts before, as we've thought about your expectations among your people, for your people, would you move on us now? Would you, by your Spirit, teach us? Use your word, not my opinions. Use your word, not anything that I have to say, Father, use your words and anoint mine that they might bring us into truth. That they might shape us as your people. And that we might understand what you're calling us to in this passage. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this isn't the first time that James has had something to say about our speech or the ways that we talk to one another. And in fact, in James chapter 3, he deals extensively with our words. Words matter. We, we, we have seen this clearly. And knowing that these verses, in fact, knowing that these verses were coming back when I preached from James 3, I even highlighted this a little bit, just kind of foreshadowed a little bit, and even said, hey, by the way, we shouldn't be speaking evil things against one another because it's destructive, it's divisive. And so if I hear you doing it, I'm going to call you on it. And if I do it, I want you to call me on it. Little did I know that that was going to come back to haunt me. Now, I've known for weeks. I've been reading James for weeks. I've known for weeks that this passage is coming. That's why I was able to refer to it. Uh, I've been reading it over and over. And so, so I wasn't surprised that these verses came. I just couldn't have timed them any better had I planned it. Last Sunday, if you were here, it was during the announcements. It's not recorded, so you're, if you weren't here, you don't get the details. It'll teach you to miss church. But I'm going to tell you enough just so you can see what I'm talking about. So last Sunday, during the announcements, I made a snarky comment about, a sister, about another church in our town. We're not partnered closely with them but we would say they're brothers and sisters in Christ. I wasn't, intentionally in, I wasn't intentionally seeking to to make people think poorly of them, but I had ill thoughts, I had bad motives in my snarkiness just seeking to get a laugh. Well, later that night, we have our members meeting, last Sunday night, we have our members meeting, and I did the exact same thing. And I might have intentionally, if you were here for that members meeting, again, <laughs> I'm not going to go into the details, so if you missed it, that'll teach you to miss a members meeting. But I want you to hear, I did exactly what James is calling us not to do. I might have unintentionally imposed a guilt or weight upon people who were, who, who were associated with that, that were here. It wasn't my intention. I apologize if, if that is you. But again, in my heart, I was not appreciating, was not caring about brothers and sisters in Christ. And I chose my, to use my platform and my position to speak words that were defamatory, that were defaming. So that evening, after, as, after everything's over, we're closing up, we're locking up, it's just me and Amy here. And she's like, yeah, you know, probably shouldn't have said that. Now, my immediate reaction, just to be quite honest, I don't want to play myself up too much in this, my immediate reaction is justify myself. But, don't you know? So I start to make excuses. It's not long before I realize she's doing exactly what I had asked the whole church to do, and actually what I had said I was going to confront the church in if I heard it among us. And all of these words from what had happened a few weeks before came flooding into my mind, and I just simply had to say, you're right. And in that moment, I knew I needed to repent. I, I knew that I had sinned against God's people in that church, and I had sinned against you as I spoke from a position and, and spoke in front of you and put you in a place where I shouldn't have put you. What I wasn't prepared for was my Monday morning ritual, 
is to sit down and begin reading. I, I read devotionally the week before. I've been reading James over and over so that I have the, the framework in my mind, but I read devotionally the week of so that the Word does its work in me before I stand and preach because I don't want to stand here as someone who has not been in the Word and not been being taught by the Word as if I can stand in any position of authority in, other, in any other way. So, so I, I begin devotionally reading. I, I just dwell in the, in the very first words I read. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Well, I wasn't ready for that. So what happened the night before comes flooding back. What, what I'm reminded of what I had said a few weeks ago, and now I'm sitting in this place where there is no way out for me. And I knew in that moment that Amy was right to do exactly what she did. And I knew in that moment that this moment of confession before the church would be the intro to this sermon, in part because I want it to stand as an illustration that I'll refer to, back to a couple of times as we work through these two verses. But also so that if you feel rebuked or in some way challenged in these verses today, you'll know you're not alone. <laughs> Hello. I'm with you, which is true every week, but boy, the timing of this particular one couldn't have been more providential than ever. You see, I'd learned an object lesson that is going to truly be played out in these verses because I had forgotten who I was and I had forgotten who they are. I had found it okay to speak against them. Christian. I think this is the big idea. I think it's the point of this passage, these two verses. Christian. He is speaking directly to you. If you're a non-Christian, these verses don't apply until you place your faith in Christ and have an ability and have a reason to pursue obedience. Hear me. Christian. Because we are who we are by God's gracious exaltation, we are in no position to disgrace or condemn each other. We have no standing. We can expect it. I think even we should expect it in the world around us. It should not surprise us when the talking heads on TV are coming from every different perspective, disgracing one another, condemning one another, disagreeing with one another, and fighting against one another. That should not surprise us. Because we've seen, that, and James has even highlighted this and brought it out in our core, at our core being the very nature of who we are outside of Christ. We are a selfish, pursuing our own passions, divided people. It may look like there's unity in the world, but that's a form of unity because at its core, everybody is after their own thing. We should not be surprised to find, each other, find other people in the world, find the people in the world warring with one another with their words. But James understands this kind of talk, the attitude that drives it, has no place in the church. There is no room for it. Christian people have no business speaking in this way to each other. And as I say things strongly today, hear me, I am speaking to myself, and I hope you'll listen. Right on the heels of James' call to repentance, we read the context of this passage. Right on the heels of his call to repentance to quit flirting with the world and instead submit to God and the promise of more grace from God, he gives us these instructions. Right on the heels of his call to resist the devil and the devil will flee and instead draw near to God and the promise that God will draw near to you, he gives us these instructions. Right on the heels of his call to humble yourself before the Lord and the promise that the Lord will exalt you, James commands these Christians to quit speaking evil against one another, to quit making judgments about each other. That may be the way the people in the world act. It may be the very thing you used to do. In fact, you may be really good at it. But no more. But no more. Just because God has exalted you, 
does not mean that you can lift your nose or lift your chin and look down your nose at anyone. Just because God has raised you up does not give you the right or the position to look at anyone with disdain, to speak of anyone in a defamatory way. It gives you no right to look down on anyone. In fact, I think it should produce the opposite result. Because we know we don't deserve our standing. Have any of you deserved what God has given you? Have any of us ever been able to earn our place? Like, have we finally done enough? Now we have arrived and now we can look at God and say, you you owe this to me, I have earned it. Will any of us ever be in a place or a position in which we can say, God, I've finally saved enough. I've finally accumulated enough good works. Here's your pay for this grace. Is God obligated to any of us in any way? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We, of all people, we of all people should be the quickest to act humbly toward others and speak humbly toward others. We should be the most likely to extend grace, mercy, and forgiveness. We, we should be the most likely to give the benefit of the doubt. We should be the most likely to speak words of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. We should be the most likely to be willing to speak words that extend the benefit of the doubt. The problem isn't just what's being said. It is clearly part of it. You see, the problem is the attitude of arrogance that drives what's being said. Because we've forgotten who we are. J.A. Mautier, one of the commentators that I'm reading, he's a great little devotional commentary. I've, I've so appreciated it. Um, he, he makes a very helpful point, and I wanted to share it with you. It says, he, he, he writes, defamation was the disgrace and the condemnation, or, or in James' words, the speaking evil and the, and the judging. Defamation is forbidden not as a breach of truth, nor even as a breach of love, but as a breach of humility. It is a breach of truth in time, at times. It, it may be that you're speaking truth, but it can be as, as much as anything a lie. At least it's handled in a, in a less than truthful way oftentimes, nor even as a breach of love. It is a breach of love. We'll deal with that in a minute. But James presents it not as a breach of these things, but as a breach of humility. If we are really low before God, if we are listening to his instruction, humble yourself before God and he will exalt you. If we are really low before God, we have no altitude left from which to talk down to anyone. Who are you in Christ? I am a child of God, yes. But that doesn't dismiss the fact that I was deser deserving of his condemnation. I, I, I am a saint because of God, yes, but that doesn't dismiss the fact that I couldn't have done that and I still struggle doing it. I can't earn that title. It was given by grace. Look, there definitely is a problem with the, with the speaking evil, with the disgracing each other and the, and the judging or condemning each other. There, there really is a problem with those words. Don't misunderstand. Those words are a problem. But those words reveal a heart with a deeper problem. It's the attitude of arrogance, the attitude of self-exaltation that motivates these words. And this is why James doesn't just stop it. it this doesn't stop his instruction at stop it. He doesn't just say, stop it, don't do it. He digs in and he shows us why we shouldn't do it. He digs in and he shows us what's underneath of it. He does say, stop it. He says, don't do it. Verse 11, do not do it. Do not speak evil. Do not judge. Well, what is that? Well, let's deal with it. What's he telling us to stop it? Stop what? 
He tells us to, to don't disgrace. Don't, don't, don't speak evil against. The word is kataleleo. Say that really fast. Kataleleo, right? The idea is, the, the word is represented, it could be an umbrella term for all kinds of negative speech. To defame or, or dis, denigrate. To speak uh, against someone's reputation. You know, it's interesting to me that even the world understands this. You can actually bring someone up on a lawsuit if they ruin your reputation because they understand that in some way our reputation is what gives us some credibility. It's to defame, to denigrate people. It it, it may be saying true things. You may be even, even saying them because you want people to know truth. But there is a lack of concern for the good of the person you're speaking of. Instead of building up, we're tearing down. It's the kind of talk that we have about someone or to, to other people in which the person's, we, we, we're not concerned about the person standing before God. We're not concerned about the person standing in the church. And I tell you, I think, I think a clear cue to that, a clear, clear clue to that, is if you really cared, you wouldn't be talking about them, you would be talking to them. Is it wrong that I have a problem with what happened last week and with what the other church did? I don't think so. It was wrong what I did. It was wrong the heart that drove what I did. There was a better way to do it. It's actually call that church and say, why would you do this thing? Why, why would this be your practice? Instead, I stood here in front of you for a laugh. And I spoke ill. See, I sought to disgrace instead of give the benefit of the doubt. And you can tell I didn't care about them because I didn't go and talk to them. I stood here and talked about them. Stop it, he says. Don't do it. Don't do this thing. Because when you do, you're, not, you're not, not just disgracing, but you're judging. He says, don't condemn. This is a dis- decision on someone's fate to condemn them, to judge them. To determine, you know, based on what you see and, and your knowledge of who they are, man, that person doesn't deserve what he has. The idea here, I think, is, is, is to make a clear statement, to make a clear decision about the spiritual destiny of a person based on our own standard or even using God's standard as applied from our self-centered perspective. <laughs> if we're so low before God that we have trouble understanding how in the world he would be gracious to us how in the world will we ever be high enough that we can look on someone else's sin and say they don't deserve the same grace we've received or that they don't have the same grace that we've received i think a clear indication of this kind of talk It's not just the talking about, not the talking to. But it's in those little conversations when you're together that you decide together that those people don't even belong to the same family. See, I don't have to love them like I love you because they're not even of us. They're an unhealthy and I don't mean this, this is just the attitude I think that drives it. Just unhealthy, unspiritual, likely not even really Christian. I think that's what he's calling us against. Don't disgrace your brothers. Don't disgrace your sisters in Christ. Don't condemn them. Don't determine that they don't belong among you because they don't meet your standard or see things from your perspective or agree with you on everything or have different methods. Don't do it. Stop it. 
Stop disgracing. Stop condemning. Why? Why is it such a big deal? I mean, aren't we supposed to be calling this stuff out? Aren't we supposed to be making sure that everyone knows the truth? I think there's a place for that. We'll get to that in a minute. But we have to stop disgracing. We have to stop condemning each other because we are called to humble ourselves before the Lord, not exalt ourselves before Him. The new life and the practice of Christianity is incompatible with the life and the practice that used to be our norm. We cannot humble ourselves before the Lord while we exalt ourselves before Him. It's impossible. These two ways of life are incompatible with each other. For us, in some way, to to denigrate or to, to, I'm sorry, to disgrace and condemn other believers, we have to be stepping up before the Lord and see, look, I'm better than they are. Now, none of us want to compare ourselves to the Pharisees standing in the the courtyard at, at the temple and saying, look at me, Lord, at least I'm not like that poor tax collector. Look at all I do for you. No, we, we want to point at that guy. We want to realize there's, that, that guy's off. But he used a person right next to him praying to the same God. Well, maybe not even right next to him. I mean, this guy, would, the, the tax collector wouldn't even draw close, but he's close enough that he could see him. See, these two ways of life are absolutely incompatible with each other. This is the kind of thing that James was getting at in the text from last week as he's saying you can't be friends with God and friends with the world at the same time. We can be friends with the, with, with, with the world, but everything we do as we seek to make friends with the world is dishonorable to God. It dishonors, discredits, and dis- denies Him. Dishonors, discredits, and denies. That's, that's D's. That'll be easy to remember. Dishonors, discredits, and denies. Everything we do as we seek to buddy up with the world and live in cahoots with them and live in line with them is to to separate ourselves from the way of the Lord. But to live in relationship with the Lord means it demands for us to, to leave everything in our way of life from the world behind. This isn't just two directions on the same path. I want to go this way instead of going that way. This is two radically different paths going to radically different places. They're on different planes altogether. They don't even exist in the same universe. Two different paths with two different destinations, with two different practices that enable us to walk on them. We cannot humble ourselves before the Lord. We cannot listen to James and follow his call to repent and humble ourselves before the Lord and look to his exaltation of us as we are at the same time seeking to exalt ourselves based on looking better than the people around us. And that's the heart of the problem. When we disgrace and condemn each other, we exalt ourselves over each other. Look at how he addresses this. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother, second time he's used that word, or judges his brother, third time he's used that word. You think he's got a point to make here? These are family members. There's a unifying theme going on here. These are people who are connected who have a same and equal standing. It's the idea here is, is that we have to ignore the unity of our family. We have to ignore the unity of the identity that we have as children of God, as brothers in the same family, brothers and sisters, if you will. We have to ignore those things. I have to be convinced of my standing before God enough to think that I deserve it more than some other church in our city. Well, that kind of undoes grace, doesn't it? That kind of undermines the idea of humility, doesn't it? See, when we disgrace and condemn each other, we exalt ourselves over each other. And the final word he uses here, the final word he uses in this charge in verse 12, but who are you to judge your neighbor? You know the last time he used the word neighbor? 
in James chapter 2, verse 8. For us, that's been weeks ago, and so likely you're not going to remember it right off the top of your head. But if you sat down and read this letter from start to finish, it would have just been moments ago, and you would remember him saying, if you fulfill the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. See, as we disgrace and condemn each other, I think we can clearly see that's not a love for each other. That's a love for self. That's a me first attitude. That's a I matter more than anyone else. And that's an exalting of ourself over our brothers and sisters. When we disgrace and condemn each other, we aren't humbling ourselves before the Lord. We, we are exalting ourselves over God's law. Look at the next thing he says. The one who speaks against a brother or, his brother, or, or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law. The very thing, same thing you did to the brother, you've done against the law and judges the law. The very th- same things you do to this brother that you speak evil against and judge, you are now doing against God's law. He's highlighting the reality that in some way we have to take the law and no longer submit ourselves under it, but sit up over the top of it. We're no longer doers of the law, but we're judges. We've determined that the law doesn't really apply to us because you know that, 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 that law that says love your neighbor as yourself? Well, that one doesn't really apply. We have to ignore the fact that we just broke it. God's law doesn't matter as much for me because I've got grace but it matters a lot for everyone else because I don't want to give them that grace. What kind of jerk are you? Sorry, remember. These are the things I dealt with this week. Who am I to judge my neighbor? How is it that I thought that in some way I could take God's law and use it against them and ignore its application to myself? What kind of jerk am I? See, when we disgrace and condemn each other, we exalt ourselves over each other, we exalt ourselves over God's law, When we disgrace and condemn each other, we exalt ourselves over God. In fact, we begin to play God. Look at the verses again. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge, right? You've you've no longer sitting under authority of the law. You're standing up over the top of the law, demanding how it applies to the lives of other people. There is only one law giver and judge. Now, it'd be okay if he followed that phrase by, that's you. That's not what he says. There is only one law giver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. That is God. If we are going to play judge, then we have determined that we can play God. We have determined that His grace upon them, that His justice against them, that His work for them or against them isn't enough. It's not sufficient. It's my job now to ensure they get what they deserve. It's my job now to make sure everyone's opinions are shaped by my perspective about them. It's my job to displace him so that people see me as the one who's standing making sure people know just how bad they are. See, instead of submitting to God, we're playing him. His his, his judgments must have been wrong. His acceptance, his extension of grace, it, it must have been an error I know better about who this person is and what they deserve than he. I think we can see without too much help, that's not really a place we need to be standing. That's not really a position in which we belong. 
So let's stop it. <laughs> let's not disgrace and condemn one another. Now, let me just uh, bring this around just a little bit. There's another way to apply this. I think you need to see before we, before we get to the appendix. See, not only should we not disgrace and condemn in our words, we shouldn't take part in this treatment of other believers by listening and joining in. Now, what I don't want to do is, by that illustration earlier, draw you into my sin. That's not what I'm trying to do. But if in that moment that I'm condemning another church, just being snarky, and you're like, yeah, you go get them. They're a jacked up group of people. What are they thinking? So you'll teach you to miss church, teach you to misremember me, and you're wondering what, what happened. But if you're sitting there joining in and agreeing, this is for you too. The reality is, if we aren't willing to go and talk to the person directly about a concern we have, we have no business mentioning that problem to other people, not even in the name of seeking wise counsel. On the other side, if you're a wise counselor, you sit down to seek wise counsel, and that wise counsel doesn't say, have you talked to so-and-so yet? Are you going to, when are you going to talk to so-and-so? And how can I help you get to talk to so-and-so? That's not wise counsel. If they sit and say, oh, dear, you, that's just terrible. I feel so bad. That's a horrible person. That's not wise counsel. That's disgrace and condemnation just by agreement. The very person being accused of sin in that little conversation is being sinned against. You are both taking the law into your own hands. You're exalting yourself over your brother and applying law that you're seeking to to deny for yourself. And in so doing, you are playing God. This should not be so. We are no better, no more deserving than any other Christian. We are not better or deserving of anything in front of God's law except condemnation. Our only standing is by His grace. We are definitely not better or higher than God Himself. Who, and this is the final question, are you, who am I, to judge my neighbor? You see, I've had to forget who I am in other to stand in a place of judgment against a brother or sister in Christ who stands on the same level before the same cross with the same shed blood making me whole. Christian, because we are who we are by God's gracious exaltation, we are in no position, no position to disgrace or condemn each other. Now, Here's the appendix. I don't think James is calling us to not identify sin or not confront sin in the church. I think James's concern is that divisive, backbiting talk that goes on behind a person's back is done even to their faith, face with a, with a desire to tear them down, to disgrace and defame. There's so much more to be mentioned here, but, but, but we're going to push really quickly through this, through this so that we can see that there are passages of Scripture that don't stand in contrast, but stand in complement and have different nuances that we have to understand, that we have to see as we speak very strongly about how we shouldn't speak judgment or condemnation on other Christians. Because Christian, because we are who we are by God's gracious exaltation, we at, at times may need to confront sin in each other. There is a right time and right place for confrontation in sin, which means we must identify it, we must recognize it, we must understand how the law forbids it, we must understand what God's word says against it, we must understand what it means for that person who's in it, and we must then care enough about that Christian so that we can actually do something about it besides sit around and point fingers and talk when they're not listening. I know that this is not what James, James is not getting at the right confrontation of sin. And I know that's true because he just wrote in John, James chapter 4, verse 4, you adulterous people. He's confronting sin. He's making some form of judgment. He's calling them out. 
But we find this all across the New Testament. James has said it. This is not the first time he said it. He's given all kinds of instructions about what not to do. Just, just this passage alone. But, but not only that, Paul does it. Paul, man, Paul does it. 1 Corinthians, whoo, man, he's offering some correction. Galatians, you remember Galatians, I think it's 3.1. You foolish Galatians. And using some strong words. Not only does he do it, then he instructs Timothy to do it in the, in the last letter he writes. And, and in that letter, he's actually telling Timothy, this is a model for your ministry. Teach it to other people. So there's a, an expectation that it doesn't stop at Timothy, but it carries on. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. That's a strong charge. I charge you in the presence of God. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, I think at least two of those words you recognize are a corrective force. And there's more correction going on than exhortation. I think it's partly because we're so fallen and we're so self-focused. That's an opinion. Anyway, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that, will, that they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In the preaching of the word, Paul says, in the preaching of the word with complete patience and teaching, Paul tells Timothy, reprove, confront, and expose sin. Rebuke, command to stop. Make a call to quit doing sin. And then instruct or exhort, teach people how to walk in a manner that's actually worthy of the calling they've been given. Point them to Jesus so that they can follow him. This time together, each Sunday, it's intended to both disciple and, if necessary, discipline you. It, I think you know this. If you, if you come to church here, if you're visiting here, you're getting a taste of it this morning. There's not going to be a lot of ear tickling going on. We got too many things to do. There's a whole lot more important stuff to be done than sit around and make each other feel good about what we want to feel good about. This, this is too precious a time. But it's not because I just want to sit and condemn you. It's not because I want to not extend grace to you. It's not because I just want to heap guilt upon you and disgrace you. It's because as your pastor, I love you. And here's what I'm learning over and over again, even this week as I was confronted in my own sin. There is a way to joy. There is a way to peace. There is a way to know and walk and be able to draw near to God so that I can experience more clearly His intimacy. There is a way to humble myself and count on His exaltation. But it's not my way. It's His. It's following after Him. We each need to be disciplined and discipled so that we might walk in a way that's worthy of this calling. But it isn't just through the preaching of the word that this should take place. It should take place in that. But Paul actually tells the church in Corinth that there are circumstances in which we're supposed to judge each other as a body of believers. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, if you read the language, he uses the exact same words about judgment that James does. And he says, we're not supposed to apply them to the world. We're supposed to apply them to each other. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, let me just read the passage to you. We'll look at it just a little bit. We're not going to deal deeply. We'll just highlight it so that you can see. He writes this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. He's writing that in such a way. It's like, that's unbelievable. Why in the world is this true? There's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. This is so bad, so blatant that not even the people in the world do it. They know better. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. As if you can just claim grace. And as if you can just celebrate this. And not, not think about the, the humility before God. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 
For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Listen to this. This is important. This is a big clue for us. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul had already made judgment. He'd already determined this guy is so blatantly living in sin, so blatantly disregarding the call to obedience to Christ, that he obviously cannot be saved. And there's this group of people, this church, who are standing around him. Oh, brother, we love you. You're one of us. You belong to us. No one cared enough about him to say, you can't be here. You don't belong here. And so what's he do? He says, remove him. But why remove him? Why hand him over to Satan? Because you care so much about him that you want him to see where he's headed before he gets there. So that, so that his spirit may be saved. He is saying, we do this with a desire for restoration. We do this with a desire for good. We do this so that they can see, so that they're not under any false pretenses that they are saved. Because if they've been saved, they will have a desire to obey, not just a free will to just run and do whatever they desire. You are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to righteousness, but you are never your autonomous own God. You read the rest of the letter, I told you, Paul clearly calls out judgment. He calls us to judge each other. I think another clue we need to pull from this before we move on is the fact that this is when you are assembled. This divisive, backbiting talk that goes on in coffee shops and sitting around in our living rooms and as we're just throwing nasty words about one another around and drawing other people into that. That's not an act of the church. That's an act of a self-righteous person. See, James has no place for that, but I don't think James dismisses the importance of this. And then third, one last verse I want us to find, to, to, to see is in Matthew 18. It's the process Jesus gives us to follow when someone sins against us. If your brother sins against you, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. James is going to say something very similar to that as he closes his letter at the end of chapter 5. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen tell them to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. There am I among them. Now, in order, I think, to illustrate this, maybe the quickest and most concise way than dealing with each verse, I just would say this. I want to go back to the illustration of me speaking ill of this other church. I sinned against them. I sinned against you. And then my sweet wife, who I love dearly, thank you, and who obviously loves me, she didn't sit down with somebody and say, man, I can't believe Seth did that. He's not really that great of a pastor, is he? Well, probably not, but she didn't start disgracing me behind my back. She didn't start condemning me in front of other people. In fact, she didn't let this even sit and wait two or three days. No, we were locking that door. We were the last ones here. And we were headed out to the car. Before the night even ended, she was gently confronting me. You see, if you're not willing to go and talk to the person that you're talking about, you got no business saying what you're saying. My fault was not that I have a problem with this church, is that I'm not, I wasn't willing to go to this church I actually am going to do this. You can ask me about it sometime if you want to. 
because I think it's a terrible thing to do in the church. But it's not my place to judge and condemn. It is my it is my place, and it is right to confront in the right way. Amy confronted me in the right way. If I hadn't repented, if I stood there and fought and sought to justify myself, she would have had every right at that point to go and sell, call two or three other people and say, here's a problem. Now, here's what's going to happen when those witnesses come. They're going to hear both sides of the story. Those witnesses might come to the realization in the midst of this conversation that the person is mistaken, that that's a misperception, and that they are in error. The witnesses may actually bring out that there's no sin, but if there is sin... The call is to repent. And if repentance happens, if the person confesses and repents and owns their sin and says, you're right, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to walk in a way that honors the Lord. It stops. Conversations, no no more need for conversation. No more need for those three people going and running around. Hey, did you hear? Man, that's Seth. He's a real jerk. You're not going to believe this. He said he's going to call us on it. Well, he got called on it. And that's awesome, isn't it? A conversation can stop because repentance has occurred. But if it doesn't, where does it go? The church. The church, the, the assembly. It's, it's, it's in the authority of the church. It's in the authority of the gathered people of God that we are able to make decisions together to say this person is a tax collector or a Gentile. But even then, it's not ostracization. As, as, I, know, I know I didn't say that right. Sorry about that. It's not kicking out and never having anything to do with the person. It's not about sending the person away and, and never having... It, it's about a changing. No longer are you disciplining them. You are seeking to call them to faith. It's a call to make them disciples. It's a call to begin to, the conversation about gospel proclamation and presentation to them. You see, if... If I hadn't listened to Amy and she had brought some witnesses along and I hadn't listened to them, at that point, in front of the church, you would have had every right if I would not repent, even over something that might seem trivial to you in this moment. Even if I wouldn't repent, you have every right to say, we need you to trust Jesus so that he can save your soul. But that is a long, slow process that calls us to be so concerned about the good of the person we are talking to that we are not standing to disgrace, speaking to disgrace them, speaking to condemn them, but that we are confronting them with a desire that they might know Christ and be saved by Christ because He is the only judge, the one who saves and destroys. You see that? You see it? Christian, because of who we are, one final thought, because of who we are, we are in no position to disgrace a brother or sister in Christ. Because of who we are, we are in no position to condemn a brother or sister in Christ. Because of who we are, there may be times we need to confront a brother or sister in Christ, but our words should be dripping, saturated with truth and grace, and our desire must be for their good. If you are acting in any other way, it's because you've forgotten who you are and because you have forgotten who God is. And so hear James call. Stop it. Pay attention. Remember who you are and act accordingly. Let's pray.